Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. Well, we're uh, concluding the series Reset, and you know, this week I was kind of smitten with the idea. Uh, you know, I'm constantly, obviously, talking about Jesus, but just there's these moments where God just just makes it so much more real. Like it just, like you just sense it, you feel it, you know it deep in your spirit. And I was just smitten with the idea of who Jesus is. You know, I mean, he was born in a small town to a poor teenage girl. He didn't have the right credentials, didn't have the right, you know, uh, degrees, um, no, no awards, you know, nobody, no titles were given to him besides the ones that we've given to him s- since. Um, you know, he didn't hang out with the socially, social uppity people or, you know, the politically connected kind of people. That's not who, who he hung out with. He actually hung out with people who were down and out. He hung out with the dropouts, those who were despised. Uh, he was a carpenter, a very ordinary profession. Nobody would have said, oh, wow, look, there's look, Jesus the carpenter. Nobody would have really said that about Jesus. He was also rejected. The religious leaders despised him, just despised him, so jealous of him, so jealous of his popularity, but they just despised him. And then there were others that knew him that basically turned their backs on him. And then, and then his own close friends, towards the end of his life when he was needing companionship and support, abandoned him. And then this gets culminated with a brutal death on a cross. Humiliated. He's dying on his cross naked. And yet, as poet James Allen Francis says, 19 centuries have come and gone, and he, talking about Jesus, is the central figure of the human race. All armies that have ever marched, all navies that have ever sailed, all parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, all the presidents that have ever been elected, put together, have not impacted life on this planet as much as one man named Jesus. Amen? Do you believe that? Because you're sitting here right now. There's no reason that this group should be all together, but you're here right now from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different, different ethnicities. You're all together in one place because of the man named Jesus. That's why we're here. And he's made an impact in this world. Now, I want us to understand that his approach was not an approach of influence. His approach of influence was not one that we would normally recognize or assume would be the case. Most of us think that we influence through power and money and strength. And yet Jesus, he became great by becoming less. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He met people one person at a time. And you understand this because that's how he met you, right? He didn't save you and the day that he saved you said, I'm just looking at all of you at Life Church. No. He called you out by name. And he met you personally. 
Jesus did that. And he, he was fully aware of the magnitude of, and the importance of his assignment. He knew that he came to die for all the sins of the world, past, present, and future. He knew that, but he still had time to meet, one, meet people one person at a time. And you understand that. I know I understand that because that's what happened to me almost 40 years ago when he met me. As we wrap up this series, I want to kind of give us an example of Jesus meeting us, having time for us. It's found in Matthew chapter 15. There's many examples in in the Gospels, but we're going to look at specifically one in Matthew 15. Um, And this idea, you know, we we, we want to study this idea of Jesus meeting people's needs and reaching out to people and connecting with people. We want to study that because, again, part of discipleship is becoming more and more like Jesus, right? Right? It's important for us. Now, I understand that most of us, I, I would probably, if I pulled this room, all of you would say, yes, I want to make an impact in people's lives. I want to serve people. I want to help people out. I want to I minister to people. I want people to be connected with God, and I want to be a part of that. I think all of us understand that. But I think oftentimes what happens is we either don't feel qualified or we, we do it, and then, and then it's like not received the way we expect it to be received. Like, you know, we... we we really reached out, and, and instead of getting a, you know, just thank you so much, you changed my life, we get like, oh, thank you, and then just walk away, right? And then we wondered, is it worth it? Is the time, is the money, is the, the, you know, the, the effort invested in this, is it even worth it? I remember when we first started a Life Church, um, uh, we, we really wanted a church where people felt seen and connected. In fact, that's why we called it Life Church, because we wanted... Life Church would be a place about of real life where, where you would come and connect with other people and you were just, we were just ordinary people coming together worshiping Jesus. That's what we wanted more than anything else. And we wanted people to walk through the doors and feel seen and connected. And so one of the things that we did to kind of try to accomplish that, which I don't think it actually did, but we tried to, was we wanted to deliver baked cookies, a dozen baked chocolate chip cookies to every first-time guest that would come to Life Church, and we were a small group, so that was possible. We don't do that anymore. So if you're new to Life Church, don't expect cookies. You're not going to get any. Okay? We have coffee mugs. Get a coffee mug on the way out. Um, but but we we would bake these cookies, right? And so Christy would bake the cookies, and then I, me and her, or me and somebody else would go deliver these cookies to the different visitors. It wasn't that many, you know, one or two a week or something like that, you know. And and so I remember the last time, the last time I delivered cookies. It was around 7 p.m. at night, and I, I, I even remember the person's name. Her name is, today, her name is, uh, I keep saying it, so she's going to probably send me a text and say, why are you talking about me in service? Lindsay Shedek, she's that's her married name. She's uh, a, a nurse practitioner here at the university. And, um, but Lindsay, at that time, was a, you know, was a brand-new graduate from college, and Chrissy had invited her to, she worked at the ER, and Chrissy had invited her to church, and so she came on Sunday morning, and then promptly on Monday, that evening, around 7 p.m., I'm delivering, by myself, by the way, I'm delivering a dozen chocolate chip cookies with a little card that says, welcome to Life Church, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember knocking on her door, and I could hear, like, movement inside, so I thought, I knew somebody was there, so I, I waited. I didn't get an immediate response. So I knocked again, and then I could hear the lock, unlock, you know, unlock. And then the door just partly creaked open. And then Lindsay looks at me, and she's got that look. This is the look. Not, it wasn't the look like, oh, there's a pastor from Life Church yesterday. I attended church. That's not the look that I got. This is the look I got was, aren't you the, 
pastor from that church I went yesterday? Like, did say this, but it was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> that was the look that I got, you know? And so I'm like, well, we're just delivering cookies, you know? And she's like, oh, okay, thank you. So I handed the cookies through the crack of the door. She took it, she closed the door, and then I heard the lock. You know, it's like, get out of here. <laughs> so it backfired, right? I really, there was effort involved. We cooked some cookies. We drove across town to the east side of Iowa City to deliver these cookies. There was a lot of effort, a lot of, not a lot of effort, but there was some effort involved, you know, and we thought we were doing a nice thing and it just kind of didn't really, it kind of backfired on us. And sometimes that's what we do, right? We want to help people out, but it just doesn't go the way we expect it. And we get a little bit jaded by that and we don't, well, maybe next time I won't do that. Or sometimes we want to we help, we want to be someone who meets people's needs, but we're just tired because there's just so many needs out there. And you understand, there's people that just, there's constantly people around you that are in need and, you're, and you just get tired of, of helping and helping and helping. And even though your heart would be that you want to care for people, you just don't have the energy for it. And so I think that this is how Jesus felt in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, give you a little bit of context. You go to chapter 14, uh, Jesus is informed that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been brutally killed, beheaded by King Herod. And so he has this news, and you know, how, do you, how, do you, how do you respond? How do you react to something like that, right? If you, if you hear that your cousin has just been killed by the king, I mean, that's going to be traumatic for you. You're going to want to have some time to yourself. You're going to want to process. You may just enter into some real sorrow and grief, and you want to process that, right? That's how you're feeling. And so Jesus wants to get away to a solitary place. You understand that. You understand why he wants to do that, right? Because he just heard this terrible news. But then as he gets on this boat to head to a solitary place, gets to the other side, the people followed him because there was this mass of people around, and they followed him around, and Matthew 14, 13 says this, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. So just get a mental picture. He gets on this boat. He's crossing the sea and they see the boat. They can probably see the boat from the shore and they're walking along the shore to the other side. They followed him. They followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, when he got to the other side, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them. Now keep in mind, Jesus is tired He's wanting to get away. He just heard the bad news. But he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So he needed to get away, right? But in, right in front of him are a lot of needs. Right in front of him are people that are desperate, that are hurting, that are broken, and they need, they need something from God, and they know that somehow know that this Jesus heals the sick. He does amazing miracles. In fact, the, in chapter 14, this is a, this story of him you know, meeting the needs of these people is, is in, the context, in that context is also the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You probably heard that story as well, where miraculously, Jesus feeds 5,000. It's not really 5,000. It's more like 15,000 because it says 5,000 men. It might have been men, women, and children, about 15,000. So he does this, right? He spends days praying for the sick, healing the sick, doing miracles, ministering to people. Then they feed this large multitude. And then in chapter 15, you know, he's got to be feeling spent. Then this happens in chapter 15. After he's done all of this, he's approached by the religious leaders and they want to argue, him, argue with him some points about, about you know, like uh, traditions and stuff like that. They want to talk to him about the washing of hands. 
I want you to don't miss this, okay? Because Jesus has been dramatically serving people and these religious leaders, all they want is to argue about traditions. Verse two, it says, why do your disciples, if you can imagine this, right? He's just done all this. He's tired, he's spent. They ask him, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Like, yeah, fine, you've been healing sick people, you've been doing all this stuff, but why? We want to know why you don't wash your hands before you eat. These are, these are the tra- tra- traditions. These are the rules that we follow. And this is very important for us. We need to understand there's a contrast that's being posed here about Jesus and the religious leaders. Somehow the religious leaders are more concerned about the traditions and the rules, and Jesus is actually more focused on broken and hurting people. And as a church, we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to have to ask ourselves, will we be people who are focused on traditions and rules and regulations, or will we be people who are concerned about the broken and hurting? And that's been our heart here at Life Church. That's what we want to do is we want to reach people who are broken and hurting. And so Jesus, he doesn't have a whole lot of patience for it. it he calls them a bunch of hypocrites, and he just moves on, <laughs> right? <clears throat> then in verse 29, 29, I mean, he's got to be exhausted by now. He's meeting one need after another, one need after another. He just, there's, he's also meeting with high-maintenance people like these religious leaders, right? This is happening. He's still tired, and then this is what it says in verse 29. Jesus left there, okay, after ministering to people, feeding 15,000. Jesus left there, went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on the mountainside and sat down. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to get away again. He goes to this more remote place. In fact, uh, the place that he, he goes to in this particular place is more of a Gentile region. So maybe in his mind he's thinking, you know, I'm going to this Gentile region. It's possible that they won't even, there won't be anybody there, no crowds following me. The Jews are the ones who are following me. So I'll just go to this place. I'll find some respite. I'll find some t- time to, to mourn my cousin. I'll find time to, to just kind of heal up. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's hoping for. In verse 30, it says, great crowds came to him. Even to this Gentile region, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they laid him at his feet. So imagine how he's feeling. All right, he's tired, but they bring these people and they lay him at his feet. They're like, hey, look at them. That's what it says, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they praise the God of Israel. So he's meeting one need after another, one need after another, and it goes on for days. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have, been, they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want them, <clears throat> I don't want to send them away hungry or, the, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? And I'm sure Jesus is like puzzled. He's like, what? What do you mean where can we get enough bread to feed this crowd? Did we just do this last chapter? Like, don't you remember just, just, a, just a, like not long ago, a few days ago, we fed 15,000. Now you're asking me where are we going to get the bread to do this? You know what I think? I think that they were tired. I think they didn't really want to do it. I think they were just like, this is just too much. We're just tired. We're, we're, it's just exhausting. But once again, what we read is that Jesus works an incredible miracle. He feeds, again, a cr- crowds of thousands of people. He's just meeting one need after another. 
Now, there's a little word I want us to focus on in this passage. It's important for us. If we're going to be a church that's about the broken and the hurting, reaching those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are lost and disconnected. Um, in Matthew 14 and 15, we see this word. Typically, it defines an emotion or an, a feeling. In fact, it's a feeling. It's a, it's a word that um, overwhelmingly is used for Jesus when he, he has this particular emotion. It's the word compassion. Compassion. Right? Verse 32 of chapter 15 says, I have compassion for these people. Compassion. I think compassion is how we are to live out our mission for God. Now, compassion is an interesting word because I think we want to look at what, what it means in Scripture. In Greek, it's the word splagnos, which has a different meaning than what we would typically think of compassion. We think of compassion as sympathy. It's like, you know, I've... I feel sorry for that person. Like I'm driving down Highway 1 and there's a person standing outside with a sign that says, well, you know, we'll work for food or something. And we, see, and we, we just, you know, our heart goes out to them all. Oh, we feel sympathy for that person, but we keep driving, right? Whereas splagnos has a different connotation. It means much more, it's a, it's a, it's a deep-seated emotion, deep-seated feeling that provokes action. That we cannot just see something and keep going. We must do something about it. And so Jesus is moved with compassion. He knows they're hungry. He knows they're going to faint on the way home. And so what does he do? He feeds them. He does a miracle to feed them. That's the idea of, of compassion here. It's, it's, a, it's an emotion or feeling that we feel that leads to action. Uh, years ago, I remember when we were in Bangladesh, we were missionaries there, and my, uh, uh, my son Josh, my middle son Josh, he was like five years old then. My oldest son Jonathan was seven at that point. And, um, and just for context, Josh is 31 now, so it was many years ago when we were back there. And, um, and so we're, we're there, and on Tuesday nights, what I would do, um, just kind of to get off, get out, you know, break my routine up, is I would play basketball every Tuesday night at the American school there in Dhaka, the city, Dhaka city, capital of Bangladesh. And um, so, and I would play with the, the embassy, the embassy Marines would come out and play with us as well, which was, which was hilarious. No, I, I know there's some Marines in this room right now, but you're great at fighting, Dennis, but not great at basketball. <laughs> Just kidding. Maybe you're, maybe you're really good at basketball. You're going to teach me a few things. Um, <clears throat> but so I would play with these NBC Marines, you know, and um, every Tuesday night, and I would take Josh and Jonathan with me, my, my middle son and my oldest son with me, and uh, we'd go, and they'd play in the gym, and I'd play basketball for an hour or so, and then after, afterwards, um, you'd go home, and Chrissy would get a break, you know, she'd just have Gabe at home. Well, this, this particular Tuesday night, we're playing basketball, and suddenly I hear this loud shriek, and I knew it was one of my kids. There was other kids there, but I knew it was one of my kids, because I heard the scream. And so game stopped instantly. I immediately, I, turned, I got into my action mode. I ran to where they were, where I heard the sound coming from. They were on this stage. I jumped up on the stage. And when I jumped up on the stage, I looked, at, I looked and I saw Josh, my five-year-old, face down. And there was like blood squirting out of the back of his head. And, um, you know, what I felt for him was compassion, but it was more than just sympathy. It wasn't like, oh, oh, I'm so sad that this has happened to him. That's not what happened there, right? I jumped into action. I reached down without even thinking. I put his scalp had peeled over. I pulled, kind of put it back, back in place, put pressure on it, put a, tore my shirt off, put it on, his, on, his, on the back of his head, and the 
picked them up and started running out of the building. And the Marines, they already had their vehicle there. So they just let me jump in the vehicle with them. And, and they took me to the British High Commission to, to get some stitches. If, you know, basically, he was five years old. So you imagine how difficult that was. You can't put it, when you have a head wound, you can't put them out. You have to kind of like be conscious. And so he was just, it was terrible for him. He probably should have had like 70 stitches. Instead, he got like 30. And... Uh, <laughs> So if you see Josh today, you will know. If you see somebody walking into his church and you see the back of his head, you see this ginormous scar in the back, that's my son Josh. And Josh will tell you it's dad's fault. Anyways. <laughs> but, but this is how Jesus sees people. See, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't, it's not just some kid had an accident. It's his kid had an accident. It's his son, his daughter, his child had an accident. And he doesn't stand back and do nothing about it. He jumps right in there and he does something about it. That's the idea of compassion here. I moved in such a way that I cannot just sit back and do nothing. I must do something. And that's why this is what we're going to be talking about today. Compassion is the fuel for meeting the needs of people around us. Compassion is the fuel for meeting needs of people around us. So when we're tired, when we're busy, when we feel indifferent or apathetic, when we grow in compassion, we actually begin to meet the needs of people around us. See, I think what happens oftentimes is that we want to be people that meet needs. But like if I had a hundred dollar, I, I wish I had in my hand a hundred dollar bill. Like if I had a hundred dollar bill, um, you would think everybody in this room would be like happy to get a hundred dollar bill from me. I'm pretty sure. That's the value of a hundred dollar bill right now is like, it's pretty significant, okay? So it's not, it's not a penny, it's not a quarter, it's a $100 bill. And I'm sure everyone in this room would be like, yeah, thanks, I'd like to buy lunch for, you know, several, for a week or whatever, right? And I think oftentimes that's how we wanna meet needs. We wanna meet needs in, such a, in, a, in a big way, in a way to where it makes a difference, it seems like it makes a difference, and also that I get a little bit of credit for it. Like, I gave that $100 bill. Like, I'm the one that did that, you know? And I feel good about it. Nobody has to plaster my name anywhere or anything. Just, just the fact that I'm the one that did that, it feels good. And I think what happens is that we, because that's the mentality we have for helping people, it discounts the cumulative effect of small, little things that we do along the way. And so I have, you were probably wondering, what are all these jars of pennies? This is actually $100 worth of pennies in here. $100 worth of pennies. And if Wayne had poured them out, well, I don't know what we'd be doing. I wouldn't be talking about it, I guess. <clears throat> $100 worth of pennies. And what I see here actually is there's 10,000 pennies here. 10,000 small ways in how we actually change people's lives. One penny at a time. One little thing at a time. That's how God changes us. One smile at a time, one, one word at a time, one hug at a time, one prayer at a time. Um, I made a list, actually, of some people that impacted my life. They, in this list, it's such small things that I don't think they would even remember. Like, I don't think that they are conscientious of the fact that they did this for me. It just happened. It was like the penny. That's all it was for them. But it was impactful for me. Fifth grade. I'm, uh, my parents are at it again. The drinking, the fighting, the abuse, 
And um, here we were again, my mom packing us all up. My mom didn't know how to drive, so she'd pack us all up, get a small little suitcase, have us with little bags, and we'd go up to the bus stop and we'd catch a bus to my grandparents' house. And we'd sleep in cots in my grandparents' house until things kind of settled with them. When I was in fifth grade, I went to three different schools. I remember the third school I went to. By the time I went to the third school, I was a little bit nervous about this. It was called Diablo Heights Elementary School. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it was difficult for me. My mom, I'm the oldest of the five boys, and so my mom, I'm 11. I'm, I'm only 11, but she's doing the best she can to have a full-time job and take care of kids and deal with a, an alcoholic husband and all that kind of stuff that, that my mom basically kind of left me to kind of take care of myself and my little brothers. Like, I'd be the one who would take them to catch the bus to school, you know. I'd have to dress myself. You're 11 years old. You're not really thinking about whether your, your clothes smell or not or whether they're clean or not, right? Not really totally into the whole hygiene thing yet. You should be, but you're not. And so here I am. I'm on my way to Diablo Heights Elementary School, first day of class, and I'm, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm, it feels intimidating to walk into that class of people I don't even know I've never seen before. And I remember I walk into the class, and I, as I walk in, kids just don't make it better either. As I walk into class, the kids look up, and they see, one kid looks up, and he sees me, and he says, and he says what's wrong with your hair? And I'm, I'm like, what, what is wrong with my hair? Well, I know it's wrong with my hair now, but then I didn't know what was wrong with my hair. The hair's going away now. <laughs> well, what's wrong with your hair? And then another kid yelled out, you look like Captain Caveman. And man, inside of me, I was bawling, but I was going to hold it in because I wasn't going to let anybody see it. I'm just bawling on the inside and sweet Mrs. Beck, my fifth grade teacher, she goes, shh, hushed the class and said, shh. I don't know. I think Ricky looks like Elvis Presley. And then she walked up to me, and she ran her fingers through my hair to kind of fix my hair, because my hair was probably a mess. Went and fixed my hair. I don't think Miss Beck would ever remember doing that, or maybe that was just something she always did. I don't know, but here's what I do know. For a little 11-year-old boy who was struggling, that was transformational. I don't remember another single elementary school teacher's name except Mrs. Beck. Little short Hawaiian lady, as big round as she was as tall. <clears throat> but I love Miss Beck. When I was 18 years old, we were living with my uncle. I've told, told you about this. We moved to the States at the, by this time. And so there was 12 of us living in a little three-bedroom, one-bath house. Um, they were five teenagers, <laughs> if you can imagine that. And I told you about Sister Slate, this lady from this church nearby who was just bent on helping and serving my mom and would do everything she can to, do, to help my mom out. And one day, Sister Slate came with a whole bunch of groceries. And so when she showed up at the, my uncle's house, she, my mom said to me, hey, Ricky, go out there and uh, help Sister Slate bring the groceries in. She was an older lady. So I went out. We opened up the trunk of her Granada and... As we open, I'm, I'm reaching for a bag, and she stopped me, and she's, wait, wait, wait. And then she reached into a bag, and she pulled out a box of brown sugar Pop-Tarts. And she said, I heard you really like these. I got these for you. I needed to hear that for a kid that's feeling ashamed of where he's at. 
I remember when we first got here to life to start this church, we were, things were tight financially. We were living off of my wife's salary. She's a nurse here at the university, and it was difficult. There was a lot of days where I just, there was a lot of Mondays where I'm like, I'm, I quit. I'm done with life church. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And, um, but things were just really tough. And sometimes in those emotions I was feeling about quitting was, God, have you, le- have you abandoned me, God? I mean, I thought you called me here, and I don't, feel like, I don't feel like you hear me. I don't feel like you see me. I don't feel like you know what's going on here. And I won't mention your name. I don't want to embarrass you because I know you're still a part of our, our church, but I remember that day when you walked up to me and you gave me that Pentecostal handshake. <laughs> you know what a Pentecostal handshake is? When somebody puts a, I don't know, 20 or 50 or $100 bill in their palm, and they walk up and they shake your hand, and then they leave, and you, oh, Thank you. You don't remember that probably, but I do. Not only did it meet some needs for that week for us personally, but it reminded me that God is still with me. And then a few weeks ago, I was looking for some stuff at Lowe's because that's what men do. (laughs) They look for stuff at Lowe's. (laughs) And... um, and I was, this, this day I was feeling really stressed out. Some decisions I was needing to make and um, a lot of things on my mind, personally and church related. And then I was also feeling a little bit, uh, I don't know, like a failure. Like I'm, I don't, I'm struggling with my own sermon preparation. Like am I really doing a good job here, you know? And I'm just feeling that, that sense there. And I walk in and there's a godly man there at, at Lowe's that I know. I've seen him many times. He's been a pastor uh, his name is Dave, David, and um, <clears throat> I remember walking in, and, he saw, and we made eye contact, and he looked at me, and he, he called me over. Hey, Pastor Rich, and so I, I went up to where David was, and he just said this. He said, Pastor Rich, I just want you to know, I've been listening to you online, and your sermons are changing my life. Amen. Uh, you don't, yeah, to David. <laughs> That's right, for David. Here's what I'm getting at. <clears throat> Sometimes it's just the right word. Sometimes it's, it does, I don't think he remembers that, but it's just a penny. It's just a small, you know, it's a hug. It's a prayer. It's a small thing that we do that can make an impact in a person's life. And so maybe what we can do is we can translate that $100 bill help to the 10,000 pennies and just operate daily and say, God, I just want to be a blessing in somebody's life. I want to say the right word. I want to say the, I want to have, you know, a smile. You, you don't know. You might be here on a Sunday morning and somebody walks through those doors and their life is upside down and just you smiling at them, just that alone can bring light into their life. That's it, right? So what I want to do is as a church, we want to grow in this. I want to I have a couple things to ask ourselves about how we can grow in compassion. First is this, ask Jesus to help you, ask Jesus to help you see people the way he sees people. Ask Jesus, this is very fundamental, very basic, but ask Jesus to help you see people the way he sees people. When that word compassion comes up in the Gospels, almost every single time it is after Jesus sees, sees them. He saw the crowds, he saw the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion, right? Now, that word saw is not just some quick glance. It's not like I'm on my phone I'm, and I see you and I look, go back to my phone. No, it's this idea of intently looking. It's recognizing. It's understanding. It, it, um, it, it requires intentionality. It requires time. And so Jesus saw that. 
And so as you ask the Holy Spirit to give you Jesus' eyes for people, here's what happens. There's this supernatural thing that begins to happen. It's like he begins to, as you look, as you're saying, Jesus, I want to see people the way you see people. You see people, and what happens supernaturally is that he begins to tell you, hey, why don't you smile at that person? <laughs> or why don't, why don't you just walk up alongside them and just ask them how they're doing? Hey, you should pray for that person. And this is how compassion begins to well up inside of us for people that we don't know as we begin to see them the way Jesus sees them. Second way that we can grow in compassion as a church is we can <clears throat> ask ourselves this question, what would it be like? What would it be like to be in their shoes? What would it be like to be where they are? I mean, they may be from a very different background, different beliefs, different politics, but just stop and ask yourself, what would it be like to be like them or to be where they're at? What would it be like? In a world that is incredibly selfish, because that's the world that we live in, a world that I get up in the morning looking out for number one, for myself, to ask ourselves this question, what would it be like to be in their shoes? Jesus did this. He, you know, he's been with them. He's been healing them. They've been with him for three days. And now... His disciples want to send them off, you know, just let them go. You know, we're tired, let them go. But Jesus puts himself in their shoes and he realizes he doesn't want them to collapse on the way home. They're so hungry, they haven't eaten for three days. So he's going to feed them and this is what he does. So we stop and we ask ourselves, what would it be like? About a year ago, I was um, I, um, meeting with a guy named Tony Gatewood. Some of you know Tony Gatewood. He's a pastor, uh, a minister here. He's a black man, an African-American man here. Um, but he, he's now in Wycliffe Bible Translators down in Florida. <clears throat> and I was meeting with him. We were having a very engaging conversation about racism and, and Black Lives Matter and different things like that. And as we're talking, suddenly my eyes just opened up to something. As he was talking about his own experience, his own background, he said something that just struck me that I just had not heard. Like, we understand the whole idea of slavery. 400 years ago, people were forced to come here, that their heritage, their background, the places that they came from, they were severed from that, and they had to start a new life here, sometimes without their, even their immediate family here. And, uh, but he said something. He said, like, I don't know where my great-great-great-grandfather is actually from. I don't know what country he was born in. I don't know what village he came from. I don't know anything about that. And then all of a sudden, it just dawned on me, what would it be like to not know where you're from? Like, I can go into Ancestry.com and I could go all the way back. I don't know my great-great-grandfather's name, but I can find it. I can go all the way back. But what would it be like to not be able to, you're doing the whole background thing and you, get, and you come to this place where you just, it just ends and there's nothing beyond it. And suddenly my eyes began to well up and I realized that, man, what would it be like to be in his shoes? This is, this is tough, this is hard. And compassion begins to well up inside of me and our hearts connected like never before. So you stop and you say, what would it be like? What would it be like to deal with that disability? What would it be like to get that unemployment letter and then have to worry about your, about your you know, taking care of bills? What would it be like to have been born in that town? What would it be like to have been, you know, to grow up under those situations? What would it be like? 
And when we ask ourselves those questions, something begins to happen inside. We don't worry about ourselves. We don't worry about, you know, the differences politically or the differences racially or the differences, any other difference. We just ask ourselves the question, what would it be like to be them? And something happens inside of us. Compassion starts to grow inside of us. So a little verse I want to uh, not overlook, <clears throat> Matthew 15. It says in Matthew 15, verse 31, it says, they praised the God of Israel. They praised the God of Israel. Remember, they, he was in some Gentile country. They're pagans. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in the God of Israel. But Jesus is moved with compassion. Jesus ministers to their needs. He heals their sick, and then he feeds them. And it tells us that after all that happened, they praised the God of Israel. Here's the point, church. Jesus didn't come in there debating. He didn't come in there, you know, trying to make an argument, trying to make a point, preach, pre preach a certain sermon. He came in there loving them one person at a time. And what happened is their mind changed. And that's what we want for Life Church. We want us to be people who love others. And no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter where we come from, that when we love others, it opens a door to be able to praise the God of Israel. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going <clears> to <throat> pray. And uh, that prayer team's here on the left and the right. And we're going to end our service the way we normally do, with a song of worship. And if you're here and uh, you need God to intervene in your life in whatever way, I don't know what it might be. Maybe you need healing in your body. Maybe, maybe you need deliverance in your soul. Maybe you just need somebody to care and pray with you about things that you're going through. Or maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and you were sitting through the service and you were hearing that, that repetitive song, He is for you, He is for you, which we're going to sing here in a second. He is for you, He is for you, He is for you. You're hearing that, but you've never given your life to Jesus, but there's something inside of you saying, I need, I need something like that in my life. And today you want to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. We want to welcome you to do that. And we'd love to be, we'd like to follow up with you as well. And so please let us know if you give your life to Christ today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, your loving kindness. But more than anything else, Father, I thank you for the compassion that you have displayed for all of us. I thank you, Lord, that you look at us individually and you know us by name. You know everything about us. There's nothing that escapes you. And so right now, Father, will you remind us that you are for us, that you love us, that you're calling us into a relationship with you, Jesus, to let down the other, the false things that we try to pursue to bring happiness into our lives and to lay them at your feet and just simply say, Jesus, here I am. I surrender my heart to you. I surrender my life to you. I surrender every part of my being to you, Jesus. I thank you, Father, for what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name.